You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. you're getting to Hebrews chapter 9, I'm going to say the first part of an expression, and if you recognize it, tell me the rest. Out with the old. In with the new. Good, you know it. Great. This idiom, out with the old, in with the new, literally means to move forward. And in fact, it means to move forward by purging, removing, or letting go of one thing with the expectation of gaining something else. And I bring this idiom up, out with the old, in with the new, because in many ways, this is the sum of what the writer of Hebrews has been trying to communicate at this point in this letter, this sermon in the form of a letter, that God has taken the old, former way of doing things, of being in community with God and with each other, what was more formally known as the covenant, and has done something new, a new covenant. And all this newness, the author wants us to understand, is about Jesus. This book, filled with 35 direct quotations from other books of the Bible, as well as many other allusions and references from the Old Testament, is trying to make painstakingly clear that it's not that the ancient Jewish practices and traditions of the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system were bad. It's just that the way of Jesus... The work done by Christ on our behalf, the life we can have in him through the Holy Spirit is better. It's simply the best. What came before was good in serving its purpose, but that purpose was always temporary. It was to educate and prepare us for the new thing that God would do, which really was just what the Lord had promised and planned to do all along, to redeem, to reconcile, to resurrect, to save the world in Jesus Christ. And as we turn to chapter 9, we're going to see this theme continue as we get a bird's eye view of the centerpiece, the sacred space around which Israel's life and worship revolved, a building, a structure known as the tabernacle. If you're open to to chapter 9, we're going to read the first 10 verses. They're also up on the screen. They read, now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. The Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had been budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover, But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people, the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time 
of the new order. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I hope you didn't blink because in just 10 verses, just 10 verses, we got a quick glimpse of both the structure and contents as well as the regular activities and duties that were carried on inside of what was known as the tabernacle. Now, just in case you did miss something, we're going to get back on the bus and take this tour again a little bit slower because these are not places that we typically occupy in Scripture. So I want us to fully appreciate what we, were, what we briefly saw here. The tabernacle, as you see a picture of it, was a portable tent that the Israelites set up in each place when they camped in the wilderness on their journey from freedom in Egypt to their new home in their promised land, the promised land of Canaan. Once it was set up, just like this, the tabernacle was where the omnipresence of God was localized so that the people would know that God was with them and for them. Much later on, when Israel finally became a nation, this portable tabernacle became the permanent temple in Jerusalem. Now, when you look at this, the look and design of the tabernacle wasn't something that the Israelites came up with by themselves. The Lord outlined in detail the building parameters of this tabernacle, how it was to be built, where it was to be put, how the Israelites were to camp around it. As the writer of Hebrews has previously told us, everything in the Old Covenant, including the tabernacle, was but an earthly shadow or copy of the deeper heavenly reality of God's will and purpose. So just for a second, this is a brief aside. If you, if you think about that, what that means is on Mount Sinai, when God gave Moses the, the, the pattern for the tabernacle, God didn't arbitrarily come up with some blueprint for a worship space and then give it to Moses. No, what we're to understand is the Lord actually enabled Moses to pierce the veil that separates this world from the next. Moses saw the true reality of the throne room of heaven so that the earthly copy could be made the right way. And as we go back to that picture, in case you think, oh, that's a picture of heaven, again, this, is, this idea is much like John in writing Revelation, the last book of the Bible, is a human person trying to put in earthly terms what they're seeing that's beyond this world. So the idea isn't that when we get to heaven, you're gonna, we're going to go, oh, it's exactly as I pictured it. But this idea that in some way, what's represented here was meant to encompass what heaven is like, what, how God's throne room is like. And so let's talk about that. Let's talk about the tabernacle. The tabernacle, in fact, as you see it there, consisted of three sections. But if you noticed, the author of Hebrews is only concerned with two of them. So before I get into the ones he wants to talk about, let me address the neglected part of the tabernacle he doesn't talk about, just so that we're all on the same page. And that neglected third section is the outer court, which you see here, which had the altar of burnt offering, which was for all the animal sacrifices performed by the priests, and the bronze laver, which was basically a large basin for the priests to purify themselves, to wash their hands and feet before making a sacrifice. Now, this outer court became multiple courtyards when the, the tabernacle later became the temple in Jerusalem. And this outer court surrounded a more central structure that was divided into two parts. And this is what the writer wants to talk about, the next two sections of the tabernacle. The first part, what the writer of Hebrews calls the first room, was, as he said, the holy place. The holy place could only be entered by the Levitical priests. No one else could go in there. Inside the holy place to the left was a lampstand made of pure gold called the menorah. This lampstand, as you can see, had three arms on each side of the main stem, so it had seven lamps in total. Every day, 
morning and evening, the priests would come in to trim the lamps and to fill them with the purest olive oil. These lamps would burn through the night. On the other side of the holy place to the right was the table of showbread. That's what it was called. On it, every Sabbath, a priest would place 12 loaves of sacred bread made according to a specific recipe, as you can see here, in two rows of six each, with pure frankincense in between. And this was likely representing the 12 tribes of Israel. This bread was put out once a week, so the week-old bread would be eaten by the priests in the tabernacle when it was replaced with the fresh loaves. Now, one thing that's mentioned is that there's two veils Inside the holy place, there were two veils or large curtains. The first veil was between the outer courtyard, which we talked about first, and coming into the holy place. The second veil, as you can see here, was between the holy place and the second or inner room that the writer talks about here in the tabernacle called the most holy place. You might also have heard of it known as the holy of holies. Now, what's really cool is, again, this thick curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies completely concealed what was in the most holy place, the holy of holies. But the writer on this tour pulls back this curtain that otherwise we wouldn't get to see what's in there. And the holy of holies itself, this inner room, was basically a cube shape. And according to our author, it contained two pieces of furniture. First, he mentions the golden altar of incense. Twice each day, the incense, again prepared according to a specific recipe, was refreshed and burned here. Now, it's at this point in Hebrews that we find out who really knows their Bible and who's still up and coming. Because if you really know your Bible, something might cause you to scratch your head here about what he's telling us. Because if you were to go back to Exodus and Leviticus in the Old Testament, which is where all of this is laid out from, to God, to Moses, and then Moses to the people, how it's to be constructed, the furniture, and where it's supposed to be. If you were to go back to Exodus and Leviticus, the altar of incense was actually in the holy place not the Holy of Holies. So why does the author of Hebrews place it in seemingly the wrong place, inside the most holy place? Here's what I'll offer you. When you picture the altar of incense, the smoke that rose from that incense burning at the altar served as a symbol of the prayers of the priest, priests rising to the heavens to God on the people's behalf. So therefore, it was intended to enter the Holy of Holies, that's why the placement of the altar of incense was at the back of the holy place, right against the curtain, so close to the veil, so when the incense was offered daily, it could be done so without the priests going in to the holy of holies. And in fact, just in case you didn't remember, this, this idea of offering the incense at the altar at that, at that placement is exactly what the Gospel of Luke records the priest Zechariah was doing. He was burning incense in the first section of the temple, the holy place, when the Lord's angel appeared to him to tell him that he and his wife Elizabeth, who had been many years without a child, would bear a son named John. John, who would later become, as we know, John the Baptist. So what I'm telling you is the writer of Hebrews probably places this altar inside the Holy of Holies in more of a functional sense rather than in terms of its physical location because the object of what it was producing was intended to go inside the Holy of Holies. Well, the second piece of, uh, piece of furniture inside the Holy of Holies, probably the most important piece of furniture of, in the entire tabernacle, was what many of you immediately recognize and right now have the Indiana Jones theme going in your head, was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was made of acacia wood and covered in pure gold. And inside the Ark, as you see on this slide, were three items. There was the jar of manna, 
preserved from the days when God's people had wandered in the wilderness and were hungry, and the Lord had provided manna for for them. There's also Aaron's staff or rod, which quite miraculously began to bloom with flowers at a very crucial point in Israel's history. If you don't remember this one, this is the moment when God was showing his people which tribe the priests would come from. In the midst of a challenge, God said, no, it's going to be the tribe of Levi. And as evidence of this, Aaron, who was of the tribe of Levi, his staff, which was no longer attached to a living plant, started to bloom flowers, started to bloom and have life. And then the most significant thing in the Ark of the Covenant were the two tablets of stone containing the Ten Commandments inscribed by the very finger of God. On top of the Ark of the Covenant was the lid, something called the mercy seat. This seat marked by two pure golden cherubim that the writer mentions in verse 5, this served as as a sign of God's presence and rule over his people. The two angelic beings faced each other, but their faces were turned downward. Their wings came together and overshadowed the mercy seat. In that, what the idea was in the space between that atonement cover and the outstretched wings of the cherubim, the glory cloud of God resided symbolizing his presence with his people. That's why they're called here the cherubim of the glory. Now, in the holy place, we heard about some of the daily activities, things, regular priestly functions that happened every day, all through the day, on a weekly basis. But as we're in the inner room, the holy of holies, the most holy place, where we quickly learn any, that it was anything but busy in there. It was anything but busy on a regular basis. It was only busy in the holy of holies one day a year. For 364 days of the year, the Holy of Holies remained a dark, mysterious, off-limits place. While it was continually filled with incense, the Holy of Holies was visited only once a year on the 365th day of the year. It literally marked the last day of the year for Israel. And it was on that day, the Day of Atonement, which we've talked about previously, that the curtain could be drawn back. And it was on that day only that the high priest alone, only the high priest of Israel, was allowed to enter into the earthly throne room of Almighty God. Once a year, the high priest came into the most holy place to make a special offering intended to cover both his own sin as well as the sin of the people he represented, the nation of Israel as a whole. And in case you weren't with us when we talked previously about the Day of Atonement, and you're thinking, why was this necessary? Because if they were on a regular basis offering sacrifices and, and offerings to cover the sins of the people, what's up with the Day of Atonement? Remember, the Day of Atonement was about exhaustively covering all the bases. It was about acknowledging once again all the intentional and accidental sins confessed and repented from throughout the year. But it was also, more importantly, about Dealing with the unconscious things we do wrong without even knowing it or realizing it. And the writer of Hebrews brings that to our mind as well. Not just the things we do intentionally or accidentally, but the things we didn't even realize we were doing something wrong. Now, you know me, you know I'm a nerd, you know I'm a, especially when it comes to the Bible, I'm a geek about this stuff. And I, when I first started this, this chapter to prepare for the sermon, I was so into this. I was going back to Exodus and Leviticus. You could tell because I'm sharing all this with you. I was like, just so on, this is great, all right? And I, again, I, I just took the, the, first, the first time I read the passage and I'm like, where is he going with this? And did you catch this when we were reading, we were reading this? That all of a sudden as he takes us through this quick tour While the writer clearly hints there's so much more he could say about this relatively small but sacred space, as well as the significance of the various pieces of furniture that we just talked about, these precious legendary artifacts reflecting God's presence and power exercised among his people, he goes, well, I'm sorry, but that's all the time we have and we need to move on. Maybe next time. 
oh, I was dying, man. I, I don't know. I was, I was, I was like literally going, I, first I had to go through my frustration of what was he going to say? What could he tell us? I mean, I, fill in the blank, man. What else could you tell us about all this stuff that we rarely get to see and get to talk about? But he's like, now is not the time. And then once I got past my frustration of realizing we're not going to hear that, we're not going to get the rest of it, I got a little bit more disappointed and a little bit more annoyed. Because when I first read this passage thinking about preaching it, I went, well, then what the heck was the point of that? Why does the writer of Hebrews say all these things if he's not going to, you know, what's the point of going into all this detail about the structure and contents of a building that no longer exists? And he offers that, us that answer in the last couple of verses that we looked at, verses 8 through 10. He tells us two things as to why he's bringing all this up. First, the two sections within the tabernacle, the holy place and the holy of holies with the repetitive nature of what took place in those rooms every day, every week, and once a year could only provide a temporary external cleansing, he points out. It could not address the deeper internal problem of sin as reflected in the human conscience. And we're going to talk more about that nuance next week because he's going to pick up on that in the rest of chapter 9. But the other thing he points out, and that's where I want to land today, is he points out how the division between the holy place and the holy of holies is symbolic of the way things were. The writer calls it the way things were at the present time. And he uses the present time because remember, he's writing to this original audience. And when he says the present time, he's talking about what they grew up with. He's saying this separation was symbolic of what you grew up with. And this is important because the Israelites believed the tabernacle in the wilderness and later the temple in Jerusalem was the place above all where heaven and earth met, quite literally. When you went into the temple, especially if you went into the centerpiece, the Holy of Holies, you were actually going to heaven into the very presence of God. And that's awesome. That's really cool, right? But what the writer of Hebrews is pointing out here, underscoring, is no one except for a handful of priests could go near the presence of God. And even then, they couldn't go into God's presence, save on a limited, very limited basis. Only once a year and only one priest per year. The point is the entire system of the Levitical order, the law, the priesthood, and everything about the structure of the tabernacle did not make it possible for ordinary people, everyday men and women like you and me, to draw near to God, let alone to be in the presence of the Lord. And the writer's simply saying, the message that was conveyed, this was the message being conveyed by the tabernacle, this idea of separation, this idea of distance before Jesus came. And what the writer's trying to point out is, but now, with the coming of Christ, that picture that I just showed you has changed dramatically. We no longer need a tabernacle or a temple to get to heaven to come into God's presence because in Christ, heaven has come to earth. God has come down in the flesh and tabernacled with us. We celebrate that at Christmas time. And when you read Gospel of John chapter one, that very famous verse, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. In the Greek, the actual word is not dwelled, it's tabernacled among us. That's what the writers, we don't need a tabernacle or a temple anymore. We don't need to go to heaven because heaven's come down to us. God has come down in the flesh and tabernacled with us, taking on our humanity in order to reach us. 
And through his work on the cross and through the resurrection, Jesus has perfectly fulfilled what the functions of the tabernacle could only anticipate. The full atonement of our sin, the resolution, the redemption and reconciliation of the problem of our sin. We no longer need a tabernacle or a temple made with human hands because Jesus has put his Holy Spirit in us. And we have become, all of us together, Scripture says, the body of Christ, the place where the presence of God dwells. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Let's keep it on this slide. We're a little bit ahead right now. But in, in reflecting on all this, I think about one of the blessings of my call. As a pastor, people often talk to me about their lives. It's, it kind of comes with it. The minute I say I'm a pastor, if, if they don't know, people feel permission. And, I, and I, I take this as very sacred to open up and they'll talk to me about their struggles. They'll talk to me about their questions, questions maybe they won't share with anyone else. They'll even sometimes confess their doubts, doubts that they maybe are afraid to tell the people that they're closest to. And, I, and I, as I say, I, I don't take that lightly. I listen very, very carefully all, to every, all the time, but especially in those moments when people are being vulnerable and open up, up their lives. And I, I notice common things that get said over and over again in those moments to me. People will say things like, yeah, you know, I read my Bible when I'm looking for answers. Or they'll say, you know, I, I come to church to feel the Lord's presence. Or one of my personal faves that I hear now and again is, yeah, I talk now and then to the big guy in the sky. Now, I don't know if you pick up on it right away, but in all of those statements is a common thread. I read my Bible when I'm looking for answers. I come to church to feel the Lord's presence. I talk now and then to the big guy in the sky. If you're listening carefully, it seems to me in those, in those statements and others like them, most Christians tend to see God as the man upstairs. They tend to see his presence as being regulated to a book. They tend to see God as someone who's out there someplace. Don't get me wrong. They believe God loves them, they came to God through faith in Jesus Christ. They've been baptized. They go to church. They sing. They pray. They listen to the sermon, hopefully. They believe what is preached. They take communion. They know a few Bible verses. Maybe have participated in a Bible study or two. They want God. They want Jesus in their life. But yet, in how they speak, in how they think, in how they re reflect their perception of God, they're maintaining a long-distance relationship with the Lord. Long-distance relationships. LDRs. Most nearly everyone has attempted one. I don't know if you know or remember my own personal story. My wife, my beautiful wife whom I'm married to, for a year of our relationship, early on, we had a long-distance relationship. I lived in New York, and she lived in California. And we like to repeat this story often to our kids to let them know just how old we are. Because when we had our LDR, it was before the age of FaceTime and instant messages. For some of us who will remember this, this is when an, a long-distance phone call still cost a lot of money. When you'd go, I'm going to make a long-distance call, and someone would go, you're going to make a long-distance call? That's expensive. Or if you did, your parents were like, don't stay on the phone too long. That's costing a lot of money right now. What we had in our long-distance relationship were long-distance calls briefly and snail mail, where we would write each other letters back and forth. Or, again, dating myself, we would send each other mixtapes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. 
And I would work a job to save money to, for a plane ticket, the cheapest plane ticket I could get to fly out to see her for a long weekend. Her dad worked for the airline. She'd take a pass to come and see me. But those weren't given every weekend. Those were, you know, when, whenever it could happen. Long distance relationships, and, and I, I remember this vividly, they're difficult to maintain. It's challenging to be apart from those we love. I mean, Daily life, right, can get so full with the things and the relationships that are right in front of us. Each day can become so busy and just get away from us. Have you had this happen in a long-distance relationship where it suddenly becomes days, weeks, sometimes even months between the last time we engaged with our relationship with someone who doesn't live nearby? And the longer we go, you have have this experience, the longer you go without talking or being together, the harder it seems to just bridge the divide And the easier it is, I don't know why this is, to think about reaching out and making contact, but not actually doing it. You ever had that experience? Oh, I was going to call you. Oh, I was thinking about you. Oh, you know, I was just thinking about, and you didn't do it, but you thought about it. Long distance relationships, I speak from experience, are not ideal. I mean, clearly we made it work. We're married, happily married, love my life. We made it work. We can make a long distance relationship work if we have to. But my point is, It's easier. It is more desirable. It is better when the ones we love can be a part of our daily lives. So again, I'm asking you, what does your relationship with God look like? How close is it? Is the idea of drawing near to God, of always regularly being in the Lord's presence, a foreign concept for you? Is the idea of experiencing a deep personal friendship with God through Jesus something that you're like, I don't even know what that is? Are you maintaining a long-distance relationship with God? Because, beloved, God doesn't want a long-distance relationship with us. That's the whole point of the gospel. That's the point, I would argue, of this passage, of of Hebrews as a whole. God does not want a long-distance relationship with us. This is what he's trying to convey through this tour of outdated worship space and all of its defunct furniture. This is not the way God wants to be in relationship with us, to live with us. From the very beginning, our creator never accepted the breakup we initiated with him. Go all the way back to Genesis. Our creator never accepted the breakup we initiated with him. The Lord allowed us to go our own way, but right from the start, Our heavenly father was laying the groundwork for all of his prodigal sons and daughters to come back home. Through one man named Abraham, the Lord created a family that became a nation, a nation through whom all the other nations, the rest of humanity could be reached. Through Israel, our father taught us his rules for life, his top 10, his 10 commandments, and created a system of worship for us to learn how broken we are. To understand what sin is, what it costs, what it takes from us, and in the midst of all of that, how atonement, freedom from that sin, healing from our brokenness could be possible. And as part of this system, which is our focus today, the Lord designed, if you will, a model home for us. A model home, the tabernacle, in which he lived with us, yet still from a distance, in order to give us some appreciation of what it would mean to live together with him. And by coming to where we are in Christ, as our Emmanuel, that name for Jesus that literally means God with us, God did away with the tabernacle and all of its furnishings, so that instead of us trying to come to him, He would make his home with us. 
And when Jesus died on the cross, the reason why the veil, the curtain dividing the holy place from the most holy place was torn in two. Do you even remember this? There's this brief aside in the Gospels, that moment when Jesus dies on the cross, that the Gospel writers go, meanwhile, back at the temple, the curtain that divided the holy place from the most holy place, the access to the very presence of God, the temple curtain was torn in two. And it was torn in two when Jesus died because in that moment, God in Christ removed every barrier from drawing near to him from being fully in his presence. Beloved, our God is not far from us. He's not the big guy in the sky, somewhere out there. Thanks to Jesus in Christ, through the person of the Holy Spirit, the Lord is not out there. He's in here. The Lord is near to us as close as our next breath. You are breathing every breath you take. The Lord is that close. And nothing can separate us from his love. Scripture is clear about this. Nothing can separate us from his love, from the presence of our God. Nothing can separate us except for our choice to keep him at arm's length. And as crazy as this sounds, some of us have a long distance relationship with God by choice, by our own choice. We want Jesus to be close, but whoa, 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 not too close. I mean, we come to visit Jesus at church but we don't invite him back into our home, into our everyday lives. We are more than willing to talk with Jesus occasionally when there's something we need, but otherwise we're busy with our own agendas for our life rather than following his. I asked a question last week, still talking about relationships and apparently it hit home. So I'm going to repeat it again. I made the point that everybody who knows Jesus has a relationship with Jesus. The question is, if we know Jesus, is the relationship we have with Jesus on his terms or ours? And that rubs some of you the wrong way. And I'm sorry, not sorry for that. But it speaks back into this. I want you to understand something. I, I really want you to hear this. Out of his amazing grace, the Lord will answer when we seek him. The Lord tells us this. When you seek me, I will answer. Out of his amazing grace, the Lord will answer when we seek him. God in Christ is there for us and will help us in our time of need. But here's the thing. God doesn't desire to be pursued as our heavenly helper alone, but as our heavenly father, always. Jesus doesn't just want to be on call in our lives. Jesus calls us to follow him so we can learn from him so we can be transformed, so we can be matured, so we can be perfected by him, working in and through our lives. Another way to think about this is the relationships we invest in, the people we spend the most time with are the ones that influence and ultimately shape who we become. Many of us live the significant amount of our lives under the roof of our family, and that's why, despite what we say, I'm never going to say that, I'm never going to do that, we end up copying the things we learned from our family, even though we claim we're not going to, because the relationships that we are spend time with are the ones that ultimately influence and shape us. If you get married, when you get married, you may be attracted to each other because of you're so different. Or in the midst of commonalities, you're attracted to the places where you're not the same. Be married long enough, and I'm looking for an amen for those of you who've got some years under you here. Be married long enough, and your kids will start telling you, you know what, you're basically the same person. 
happen? Because the relationships that you spend the most time in, the people that you're around influence and ultimately shape who you become. When you were growing up, why were your parents so concerned about the company you kept? Who were you hanging out with? Who were your friends? Because they understood the people that you hang out with on a regular basis, the people who are your crew, your tribe, whatever. The people you run around with are gonna ultimately impact how you see and how you interact with the world around you. And if this is true, and we see it being empirically true in all of our other relationships, that the relationships we invest in, the people we spend the most time with are the ones that influence and ultimately shape who we become, then our relationship with God is the most important relationship we have. That's the point. Because God's our creator. He brings us into this world. He alone has the words, the breath of life. But he's not even just our creator, right? He's our father, We're created in God's image. We have the spiritual DNA of our Heavenly Father in creating each and every one of us. God has impressed the divine stamp of his personality upon us. Don't you want to know who you are? Then you have to know whose you are. But our relationship with God goes even deeper than that. Perhaps the most important facet of our relationship with God, even beyond being our creator, is God is our redeemer and our deliverer. God carries us from this life into the next, it's a relationship that we're going to have forever, that will last forever. Beloved, Jesus has so much to show us and to teach us about ourselves and about each other. So many of us struggle with questions and with doubts, with confidence, with all kinds of things, and Jesus wants to show you, teach you who you are. So many of us have relationships in our lives, people that are tough to love, people we can't forgive, people that we struggle to even appreciate, and Jesus wants to teach you and show you how to see those people in your life through his eyes. Jesus wants to spend one-on-one time with you. Jesus wants to hear from you, not just from me for you. I'm not your priest. I'm your pastor. Jesus wants to hear from you. Jesus longs to offer you the wisdom, the guidance, again, the confidence and the courage that you need that we all want. We all want wisdom. We all want guidance. We all want confidence. We all want courage. Why would we not go to the ultimate source of our wisdom, the ultimate source of guidance, the ultimate place where our confidence and our courage come from? My friends, the question is not, do you have time or do you desire that kind of relationship with God? The question is, why wouldn't you want that kind of relationship with God if you can have it? But maybe, for some of us, this is the kind of relationship we want with Jesus. But we just don't know how to have it. Maybe we've been struggling to get there. You want to have a long distance. You don't want to have a long distance relationship with God, but that's what it feels like sometimes. I mean, and I've been here. I've I've wrestled with this question too. I mean, let's just put the, call out the elephant in the room. How does one build relationship with someone who isn't physically present in the same way our other relationships are? And therefore, because they're not present in that same way, seems so far away. And the only answer I can give you, not as an expert, but as a student, as a disciple, just like you, is we have to engage this relationship with God in the way that he tells us we can engage our relationship with him, where we can find him. And the Lord promises to be with us through his word and by his spirit. And that's a both and, not an either or. 
together, his word and his spirit. And when I say being in the word, many of you are in the word, but this is what I'm saying. I'm not just talking about studying God's word. I'm not just talking about having a Bible. I'm not just talking about getting into the Bible for a daily inspiration. I'm not just talking about that. When God says we can find him in his word, he means coming into his word like we would with any other relationship, not looking for something quick and easy but coming from a posture of openness and conversation, coming devotionally, coming prayerfully. And that's why prayer is so important. Word and spirit together. Prayer is a means of our relationship with God. It's our conversation with God. But then I've talked about this before when we talk about prayer and many of us have been taught something that may sound good, but is inherently flawed. God does not want to have a superficial conversation with you. God doesn't just want you to come and show up with your list Here's the things I'd like you to do. Gotta go, see you later. Oh, I'm back. Thank you for taking care of these. Now can you work on these? Imagine any other relationship in your life where you showed up and that was the extent of your conversation. That person would go, really? Really? God doesn't just want a superficial conversation. He wants meaningful connection with you. And so what I'm saying when I say prayer is be intimate with God. Honestly, Confess to Jesus. Maybe to, you can't confess to anyone else your deepest hurts, your fears. We all have them. Your longings, your dreams, and your hopes. Lay them out. And here's the thing. Don't pretend to be something that you're not. We have this habit in the church of teaching you that there's only one way and only one right way to pray, and there's only certain code words you have to use when you pray. We often, many of us, pray in language that we don't normally use when we talk. God wants you to be yourself. God removed all the structure, all the furniture, all the, all the garbage that gets in the way so we could just come to him, talk to him like you would talk to anybody else. And don't bargain with God. So many of us, that's what prayer is. You bargain with God. Hey, you know what, God, I'll do this for you if you take care of this for me. You know, God, I've got this. God isn't interested in bargaining with you because you've got nothing to offer. You don't. God's like, um, okay, so basically you're going to give me what I've already given you. Thank you. Okay, great. God doesn't want you to bargain with him. God wants you to just bear your soul, your heart, empty your mind, lay it all out. And in the midst of that, listen. Listen. Because God speaks through his word. Remember, as in all relationships, conversations build on each other. Some of us have gone on our knees once and it didn't really go well and we're like, well, I'm not doing that again. How many times have you had a relationship where the first conversation was kind of clunky? And maybe the second or the third, but the more that you engaged in conversation, a relationship developed. Conversations build on each other. And if all of this still sounds very, very generic for you, the one other direction I'd point you is that there are, in the history of the church, just a slew of spiritual practices. The more formal word that turns people off is spiritual disciplines. But these practices, these disciplines of engaging in the word, of being in prayer, they're all born out of Christians like us, followers of Jesus who were zealous for a closer, deeper walk with Jesus. If you have no idea what any of these are, explore that. Learn from those tools. Because God wants to be in a close relationship with you. Remember also, don't forget, relationships are built over time and with attention. They're not built in quick, sporadic bursts. Relationships aren't built when you're focused on something else. Relationships aren't built when you're exhausted and spent. And many of us, that's how we approach our relationship with God. Here and out. In and out. 
We, we try to multitask while we're in relationship with God, like we do with everybody else. We, we come to God when we're exhausted and spent. When we've, at the end of the day, when we've done everything else we need to do, when we've exhausted every other option, then we're like, okay, God, what do you got? As with any other relationship, it's hard to draw closer to Jesus. It is hard to go deeper with God when you're not spending much time together, when you're not just being with each other. And I'll leave it with this, with this question. Chew on this. When's the last time you dedicated a whole day of your life and gave it to God? In marriage, we talk about the importance of date nights, or even as couples, we can get so caught up, we need to go on a date night, time for just us, for just you and I to be together, away from everything else. We talk about play dates with our kids. Then I want to go and invest in that relationship. We talk about getting away with friends we haven't seen for a while. Let's get away for a weekend. When's the last time you approached your relationship with God that way? I'm not talking about an hour and a half on a Sunday. When's the last time you said, God, I'm giving you the whole day, and I'm looking at some of you right now, and you're terrified beyond belief because you have no idea what that day would look like. What is possibly going to happen in a whole day that you give to God? And that's the whole point. What could possibly happen if you took a whole day and gave it to God? Not trying to do other stuff, not trying to work on other things, but God, and that's why there's retreat centers, places you can go and just said, God, the day is yours. You might be surprised. You will be surprised as how God can and would show up. As you bring your Bible, as you bring your heart as you bring your open mind, as there's nothing else there, and it's just you and Jesus together. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a promise that I believe I can stand on because it's a promise that God gives. If you, anytime we give to God, but if you were to give a day to God, you are going to grow in your awareness of the nearness of God's presence. You are going to grow in your, in your perception of just how close God is to you in a way that you never have before. And if you do it, you're going to do it again because that experience will profoundly change you. And that experience will change you, not that you're just looking all the time for days to get away, but it'll literally change the posture of your everyday life. Because you'll realize that relationship needs to be at the top of all the others. And like I said, I'm not talking to you as an expert. I do not, do not have this all figured out. I am a the student. I am a disciple. I am sharing with you from discernment of my own failings, of my own faults, as well as the glory of what God has done in the midst of all those failings and faults. And I want to just lastly share the most beautiful thing that I've realized recently about our relationship with God to further encourage you not to have a long-distance relationship with him. The most beautiful thing about our relationship with God is this. In our relationship with Jesus, our failings don't matter. And in every other relationship, even if people have forgiven us, our failings matter because we've, we've hurt someone, because people are, have different areas where they've been hurt before. But our failings with, don't matter in our relationship with Jesus. What I'm saying is you don't have to pretend with Jesus. You don't have to pretend that you're not angry, that you're not sad, that you're not hurt, that you're not scared. And a lot of times, let's be honest, we have to pretend with each other. We're not angry. We're not sad. We're not hurt. We're not scared. Not because we're trying to lie, but sometimes because the other person can't handle it. We don't always have to be happier in a good mood in our relationship with Jesus. We don't have to edit ourselves. How often do you edit yourself in your relationship with others? I can't say that. I better not say that way. We don't have to be worried about saying the wrong thing in our relationship with Jesus. We can never exhaust our relationship with Jesus. And we can exhaust our other relationships. Trust me, I've tried. 
but we can never impose or tax on God's time. I've reached in relationships, I'm sorry, I, this is all the time I can give you. I am sorry, but this is more than I can handle right now. God is never gonna say that to you. No matter how much we commune with him, God's not gonna go, sorry, I've got an appointment somewhere else. Our relationship with God in Christ is the one relationship. It's the only relationship we can never wear out or use up. Think about that. We may seem needy to others. And I'll confess, I've come across as needy to other people. You're so needy. You have needs that I can't satisfy. You need me right now, but I can't be there. We're never needy to God. We may overwhelm and annoy other people. You ever had that? You're overwhelming me right now. This is just like too much. I can't take this right now. Or annoy people. You're annoying me right now. My gosh, you just keep repeating the same thing. Get over it. Why are you doing You're never going to overwhelm or annoy God. God never tires of our demand on his attention or time. And that is a beautiful thing. My friends, many people know about God. Many people talk about God. Many people have read about God. Many pray to God. Many participate in religious activities around God. Many of us settle for a long-distance relationship with God. But the good news is, thanks to Jesus, our God is not far away. Our access to the presence of God is much closer than it ever was before. Our relationship with God can be the closest one we have. Our Father desires to be united with us, his children, not only in the life to come, but in the life we are living right here, right now. Therefore, let us, let us become more and more aware, more and more immersed in our relationship with the God who came down in Christ to draw near to us not just so that we would know about God, not just so that we would talk about God, but so that we could be with him, so that we could talk to him, so that he could live in and through all of us together. Amen.